The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Feeling Sound podcast. In this episode, I've come to my old stomping ground, Dean Street in the heart of Soho in central London. And I've popped along to have a chat with one of the nicest men you could ever hope to meet in the music industry, Adam Perry. Adam is the drummer of the band A and also of the Bloodhound Gang. And I've come along here to find out about some of his adventures, some of the people he's met along the way and how that has influenced his own career in music. Um, my earliest memory is, um, it's foggy now, being so old. <laughs> no, it was, um, it was age five or six in Leeds. My mum and dad literally sat me down and me, me and my our twin brother Jason went, this is music, and put on a Beatles record and put on Help, I Need Somebody, and then, and then put on uh, Classical Gas. And then, um, and then, oh, the leaves are brown, California dreaming, and that was it. And, it, and Dad sat down and said, this is called music. This is, this is stuff I'm into. I've listened to this. And it blew my mind. It's like, wow, this is ace. Really amazing. Fell in love with California because of California dreaming. Fell in love with the Beatles. And um, yeah, that was it. Off you, off you go. Yeah, that was our musical education. You're in a band with your brother, Jason, your twin brother, but you're also in a band with your other brother. How does that work? How does that dynamic work? A lot of arguing. A lot of arguing. A lot of pissing off the others in the band because we're just... So, yeah, me and Jason are really similar because we're twins and, 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 like, properly identical. Same bad voice, same bad posture, same shitty teeth, same pigeon chest. Everything you can imagine, we're the, we're the, we're the same. It's quite nuts. He's got, I've got girls, he's got boys. It's really weird. And um, just turned up for a meeting this morning wearing the same clothes, ordered the same stuff, sat with our map books facing each other, doing the same things, with the same mannerisms with our hands and face, and the bloke we were meeting was looking at us again. Like, you see, you're just thinking, this is fucked up. Like, this is not you. It's cute when you're 10, but now this is just, it's just wild. I don't get it. It's weird. So, yeah, you've got that going on. Um, and because we're really close, we argue like, like nothing on earth, like nothing matters, but it's not even an argument, it's done. It's like succession. You, if you watch succession, that's exactly what our family's like. Uh, it's great. And Giles is Giles is a clever one. Giles is four years younger, super bright, really talented, really musical, uh, and um, but quite different to me and Jason in terms of personality. How does that work creatively though? Do you, do you, do you sort of bounce off each other creatively? Does that, does that dynamic work as well? Yeah, 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 it really, it really does. Yeah, any anything. If I'm interested in anything, I've seen like I get. I like to be bombarded with with, with stuff. So if I if I see an advert I like or a TV advert or something on the side of a bus or a building or whatever, Jason's the first person I'll share it with because I just want his validation. Or it's come back and oh man, that's ace! What a great building! And then I feel good about sharing it with other people. It's weird like that. He's sort of test bench everything with with Jason. He does the same with me. Cause it's like it's like sort of asking yourself. 
really. It's, it's, you're not a twin, you can't really describe what it's like. But I've got no, I've got no, I don't know what it's like not to be, because I've never been not a twin, so it's quite weird. You are a musician, so let's talk about you being a musician. Uh, tell me what you do, and tell me the kind of the bands that you've been in. Well, I, I play drums, um, in, in, in brackets, badly. So there's always a bit of a caveat. You've got a bit of context around my drumming. So we've got, like, we've just done some gigs, this, uh, some festivals this summer, and we did download, and our monitor guy couldn't make it. Because um, obviously COVID, everyone's kind of a bit all over the place. And this is our first gig back. So we main stage at Download Festival, obviously massive. And um, we knew we'd be using the in-house, well, you know, the... the in-house guy from PA company is doing monitors. So we made a bit of a cheat sheet for him in terms of what levels might be. So I had like, you know, I've got like my Adam drums and I've got you know, kick drum nine, snare seven, guitar eight, no bass, no vocal, all that kind of, no hi-hats, no, no cymbals. And then in brackets, I've got, sorry mate, um, one out of three kick drums might make it. <laughs> You know, I'm like, I'm already apologising for my kick drums to the modern guy I've never met on a piece of A4, just so he's not listening to it going, fucking hell, he's rubbish, isn't he? Well, you know, that's how badly I feel about my drums. But I do like playing drums. And I suppose my uh, forte is at performance. I, play to the, I like to play to the song. So I, like, I play drums to enhance the song rather than rather than know my chops and my techniques and my rudiments. I'm not that kind of person at all. I wanted to be in a band. I didn't want to be a drummer. So would you say that you feel the music rather than you've you 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 know you, you've learned it, as it were? Yeah, yeah. So I've never had a lesson, never wanted to have a lesson. I don't really care about technique. As you get older, I think you do. It's like, you know, people start taking a, taking open university courses or start taking a language. I think you you kind of want to push yourself a bit more when you get older and I, I do wish I'd had lessons now and I'd learned more back in my youth because I started playing when I was 11 went to see the jam first gig ever blew my mind started playing drums and um, and and um, yeah and then when you get in a band you know you, you're, you're busy you're touring or, or, you, or you're rehearsing for a tour or you're recording or you just want time away it's before you do this for a living, you rehearse on a Wednesday night or on a Saturday night and you know, band, band practice or whatever it's called. And when you start doing it for a living, you just don't do that. You rehearse for the tour. You know, like Blood, Bloodhound Gang, five days before a tour, we rehearse in the first city that tour's in. So it could be Miami, it could be, it could be um, Moscow, it could be, it could be Aberdeen. It could be, you know, wherever the first date is, we'll... we'll Book, book a hall there for five days and rehearse in the venue of the first gig, which is which is a great way of doing it. But that, you know, apart from my little kit at home, just getting used to playing to clicks again and just getting back into a bit of a feel, that's the only practice I have. Just don't have time. You mentioned the Bloodhound Gang. Now, obviously, you're synonymous with that band. Um, you weren't in the original lineup, but you've become one of the, the band members that most stands out with your energy and your enthusiasm, I think. Uh, tell me what that was like to be in that band. Uh, honestly, it, um, it was nuts. Because like we, we, we played with Bloodhound Gang in A for two, three years. So that's how I got to be friends with them. We all got to be friends with them. They came to our weddings, became our best friends. We learned loads from them about how to look after artists on tour, how to conduct yourself. And um, yeah, we just learned a lot from them and, and absolutely had a blast. And our first tour of Europe was them supporting them. Uh, we, so we discovered all these places around Europe we'd never been to before. We got big in Germany because of them. They literally saved our career. We, we, were about, we did get dropped. 
we got dropped and then we went to see Faith No More at Brixton Academy with our record company and we showed them the artwork of the single that would have come out if they're not dropped us and the guys like holy shit that looks amazing I was like yeah, no, what would you drop us for then and, um, and by the way we've got this off for this Bloodhound Gang tour in Europe so really alright well let's speak to the Germans tomorrow and see what we can do with the record and you know at least got a phone, a phone call the next day going yeah we've reconsidered you're back and uh, it's, it saved our neck and we did that German tour and then it went into a European tour and we had a, a big hit in Germany as, uh, in our band and saved our career and learnt loads from them and then consequently I don't know how many years later I did, then did two coast to coast American tours of them which was amazing you know starting in Florida and ended up in California and hitting every state in between two or three times um, that took about a year and a half and and, and then and then, yeah, when then our band got dropped in 2005, I started a new business managing writer producers. We had loads of success. We had five number ones in 18 months. That was good. And then I got a phone call from my friend, it used to be Blur's tour manager, who's Bloodhound Gang's tour manager, good friend of ours. He's like, mate, um, Billy just quit in San Francisco, is, is the old drummer. Really good mate of mine. Amazing bloke, incredible drummer. Uh, he's like, yeah, he's had enough. Um, We've got an arena tour starting in four weeks in Germany. Um, we were rehearsing in Zurich, wherever it is. Fancy it. And, uh, and at that point, I got into business and I was managing and and I never thought I'd sort of see the inside of a tour bus again, let alone the inside of an arena inside a tour bus. And um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And, and that three-week tour turned into 10 years. Um, and I just saw everything you can imagine seeing, you know. It's weird when you're, when you're on tour of that scale, doing arenas and playing headlining festivals and the old stadium, you literally can get away with murder. Like you, you, you're, you're in a different country the next day. So certain, you know, certain, certain instances are kind of arise where you, you can just literally get away with doing anything and there's no consequences. And um, so, you know, I don't mean murder, by the way. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm using a turn of phrase, but you can be stupid and have a right or laugh and, ding, ding, and can smash your head out of a place and, and a lot of wild parties and all that kind of stuff. Not that I'm ever involved. You know, big, the big joke is I'm in bed by 1am. I go to bed, put my, my uh, you know, AirPods, back in the day they were, they were Apple earbuds and go to sleep before the bus starts at 2am. And, um, and then I come downstairs from the bus at 8am to go have catering in the next gig with the truck drivers and the bus drivers because they're all from England. So I get to talk about Arsenal and, and football and, and you know, read the British papers and everybody else on the tour is American. And then uh, as I'm coming down the steps, everyone's still up from the night before and like the place is like a zoo. And it's like, I can't wait to get off this bus, get a shower, feel clean, have breakfast. And then... I use my day running whatever business we're potentially running at that point. Do a sound check at half five. Nobody else really sound checks apart from me. The crew do it, but I like to sound check because I'm using a click. Um, and then people start kind of turning up around seven, you know, getting getting out of pajamas and getting ready for the rock. It's mad, and then uh, yeah, and then the whole thing starts again. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's never experienced that, I mean, I've been on tours and I've, I've done. I've done lots of gigs where you're away and living at our hotels for months or whatever. But with someone who's never experienced that level of, of, of touring, 
What's it like? It must drive you insane after a while. It's no, it's no mistake that a lot of bands break up after they've been touring. It takes a, it's a, it takes a, a, a certain type of person that can do it. It's not for everyone. But if you're that certain type of person, if you love travel, if you love discovering places, if you love camaraderie and community, which I absolutely get a massive buzz out of, I don't know why, I love community. That's why I love the Arsenal. Arsenal's a proper community club in the, in the heart of North London. It just feels amazing walking to that stadium with 60,000 other people who are all into the same thing as you. Nothing like it. And, um, and, and when, yeah, when you get close to people, you get down days and you get up days and you get days where you want to come home, obviously. And as you get older and you have kids and you become married, it gets really hard. But, you know, I, I said to my wife, I'll never be away for more than three weeks, even from back for just half a day. And um, and I, so I've, you know, I'm always the Ryanair flight away. And my, my younger daughter has got a severe, severe allergies. So I'm, I don't drink on tour, um, just in case I've got to get myself to the airport under my own steam, which has happened a couple of times. I don't rely on anyone else. I don't rely on myself. So I, I'm the straight guy. But yeah. <laughs> we used to joke in A though we love touring so much you know and you sit down with Paul McCartney and you're in interviews where he's like oh you know um, touring it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real bind but the hour and a half on a stage makes it all worthwhile and we used to say all the time like oh touring is such a bind um, but the, you know the, the 23.5 hours where you're not on stage is fucking amazing <laughs> it's just a gig that ruins it because our gigs used to be so terrible to start with and then they get better and better and bigger and bigger and, they, and it starts to turn the other way around but we used to dread the gig we were like oh we just want to, we're just here for the tourism and hanging out let's break it down let's go band by band then so you are synonymous for me anyway with, with the band uh, A uh, there's you and your brother Jason and your brother Giles and obviously it, it's, it feels like a real kind of family affair in, in a lot of ways What's your favourite song? Why is it your favourite song? And, and what does the band mean to you? The band means everything. Like Mark, who's my best mate, I met when we were 14. We moved from Leeds to Suffolk, to Southwold. From, 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 from 1980s Leeds, which is football violence. The Ripper just happened. Like it was, an, you look back at it, it looks like Eastern Europe back in the seventies. Like you know, and I remember it fondly because we had we had a lot of snow and we built igloos and went sledging and we had a great family life, and we had a really you know we had a proper lovely you know I can't complain, lovely upbringing. But mum and dad decided it's time to get out. Let's move. So my dad, my dad sold Suffolk like it was California. Like oh, when you get down there, you're not gonna believe how warm it is. It gets humid. They get like, you know, it's like selling humidity, like we're about to move to Fort Lauderdale. And then we got to Southwold and we had 15 foot snowdrifts, like the worst winter they've ever had. I remember digging, helping the, the rest of our street dig out this minibus that had been trapped in the snow. And I'm like thinking, where's this um, Floridian humidity I was promised? And um, so we moved to South, and the literally the first person we met on the first day of school in Southwold was Mark, our guitarist, came up to me and Jason and went, are you two, um, are you two knobheads or something like that? And um, I went, yeah. He went, oh, okay, do you want to come back to my house and, and listen to me play Hammer to Fall by Queen? And at that point, me and Jason were mad jam fans. And we were just getting to Rush. My mate Stuart had played me 21, um, 21 12 and actually stayed left on the way to a trip somewhere. And it was the first time I'd heard Rush play, and it blew my mind. I could not believe what I was listening to. So we were getting into rock music more than that kind of new wave punk thing that we were, we, we were really into, the police and the jam and all that stuff. Um, but I still love that whole power trio thing. And that's one of the things I loved about Rush. They were like a prog power trio. 
And so, yeah, I went back to Mark's house. I threw some, I pl- threw a plate of beans over Jason's head to make Mark laugh, try and impress him. And um, and then Mark picked up his guitar at age 14 and went and just started playing the solo to Hammer to Fall by Queen. And I never even heard a guitar solo, really. I never heard anyone play one. And then he played Eruption by Van Halen. I was like, holy shit, who is this kid? And he makes me laugh more than anyone I've ever met. He's my best mate still today. We talk every single day, on, well, mainly on WhatsApp. And um, so being in A to me right now, and our sort of third or fourth birth means mean, means friendship. But, but you know, and it didn't always did from, from, from day one. It was always about hanging out with our mates. And obviously we wrote some killer tunes. And, uh, and and then when, when Dan joined, especially Dan Carter, who's already a one DJ now, does a rock show, we really sort of found our groove and, and, and um, our second album, Monkey Kong, which Dan was a big sort of writer on, um, took us in a different direction and we started getting some rave reviews and front covers and, 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 and people started writing about us and... Yeah, we were like the British Beastie Boys for a while. We could sort of do what we want. But the whole idea of A was to do paint whatever picture you want to paint. We're not going to be sort of, you know, we can be a punk band like the Beastie Boys one minute. We can be a prog band if you want. We can be Jay's Addiction. We can be the police. We can be Van Halen. We can be anything that influences us like the Beastie Boys can. And just going to throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. So Monkey Kong is that is my favourite album because we tried, we tried everything on the album and we didn't really care about the consequences and then as you have success you start even subliminally you can't really help it you start caring about the consequences once you've been on Radio 1 once you've done Top of the Pops once you've had a top 10 you're like what if the next one's not top 10 and you start kind of chasing your tail a bit and the fun starts to slowly evolve out of it and yeah as Hannah Montana said it's all about the climb and you don't realise that until you've got to the top of your little mountain and then it's, you start ambling down the other side you don't really realise you're ambling down the other side until you get you're at the bottom you're like oh shit turns out we got dropped yeah so, so it's all about the climb and we are really fortunate like we said to our record company droppers like, we're not a charity we understand this is a business we owe you 1.6 million I'd imagine or did the maths and um, I don't blame you for droppers but let's remain friends and we've always remained friends with everyone we've ever encountered and now in our sort of little business lives whatever you try and do it's a small industry as you know Mark um, we can count on loads of friends um, that seem to like us for some reason because we've always been friendly we've always been the people that came in bouncing into the room and, hey Dylan can we make you a tea you know from bus drivers to to PA companies to promoters to agents and, and we've managed to retain those uh, those relationships and keep keep strong friendships and yeah and, uh, yeah, people, there's still a lot of love out there for A from people I don't know why, but because probably because of that, because we've always been sort of nice guys, I suppose. And we had a handful of decent tunes, which garners you a certain size audience that you end up being there for every band. And they'll come out of the woodwork all the time to see you and, and, and sing every word back. Like the life depends on it. It's an amazing feeling. Two things then. What's your favourite track on Monkey Kong? And uh, the best gig you've had when the audience have really, really played their part? Um, favourite track on Monkey Kong is a song with two a song called Old Folks which sounds like the police meets James Addiction and I love that song I love playing it live I get hairs on the back of my neck when Giles comes in with his sub army at the end there's a if you, if you ever get if you ever bored Mark listen to that song but there's a, there's a real there's a real kind of um, good little sub, sub harmony at the end of it 
that Giles, our younger brother, sings, and it's amazing. And when we play it live, it makes me feel great. I always look over at him because he's on the next riser, and I'm hitting the bell of the ride, and so I look at him, and it always just makes you feel great. But my favourite song is a song called Summer on the Underground, which is a real, like, in a, in, a, in a rock band, it's really hard to write melancholy. That's why I love Travis, and that's why I love Blur and bands like that. They can write melancholy in pavement. In a rock band, bluster and riffs and stuff take over. It's really hard to strip it back and open your soul up. Not in a kind of, ah, oh, soul, but really strip it back and blur. Like, think about... Um, um, no Distance Left to Run by Blur. It's the best bit of melancholy I've ever heard, really, from a British band. And Travis writing to Ricci or Driftwood, songs like that. I listen to that stuff more than I listen to anything else because I love I, I, yeah, Everett Brothers and, and Pavement and bands like that. It really, you know, things that can really touch you emotionally. And we've got a song called Summer of the Underground, which is like a, a sort of introspective look at London and and just what it's like in summer and just feeling a little bit kind of out of the loop and a bit yeah I should be doing other stuff than just struggling getting on the tube and the humidity and yeah the lyrics are brilliant and uh, uh, yeah that's my favourite song And for every gig, we, the first time we headlined the Astoria, me and Mark are talking right just in the shadow of the former Astoria on Tottenham Court Road where, where, where it meets Oxford Circus. And the world's greatest venue, you ask any band from any country, the best venue they ever played, it'd be the Astoria. All the American bands coming over here, making it. The first time they played the Astoria, they can't believe it. So go back home. And they're, they're way smaller than the Astoria. You know, if you sold half a million records, you're still playing tiny clubs. But in England, you sell 100,000 records, you can do Brixton, you know? And um, so when you get your first sniff of success and you play the story, you can't quite believe it. And the, the most amazing gigs I've ever seen are at that place. And then to headline it ourselves on the Nothing Tour, it's February 2002. We brought loads of snow machines inside, made it look great. That was my favorite gig of all time in, in A. And then I think the second time we did the main stage at Reading, um, just before Muse, um, was was incredible. After we had a couple of hit, couple of big hits, it was quite amazing to see that trans, transfer itself to the back of that Reading audience in terms of like a sine wave of mosh. It's quite nuts. Yeah. What does it feel like? I mean, the drummer's at the back of the of the stage, right? You're always going to be at the back of the stage. You're always going to be the guy who's who's hidden behind everything else. But you've got a unique perspective, in my in my opinion. I mean, you've got you see your you see your fellow band members. You you can you can chill and, and a little bit within reason, but you've also got a unique perspective on the audience. What does it feel like when you're looking out across Reading? Feels it feels fucking amazing. Like I say to Jason all the time when he's getting a bit big-headed, Listen, people don't mosh to your lyrics. They're moshing to this, to my kick drum. That's what's making people move, and um, and you really do feel that. You generally feel that you're in command of that. Oh, it's, 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 there's no better feeling than when Mark turns around 
and and leaves his his sort of part of stage and runs towards me in the riser, and just like fucking hell, and he's playing and he's like looking at me, going, we're just like sharing that moment. I think we were at school together, you know, and it's you know a lot of bands have got that, you know, look at the Van Halens, you know, and every band's got people that are at school together with Blur, Oasis. I love that about bands. I love that you just form at school or college or uni, and you end up going on this look at Coldplay, you end up going on this massive journey. It never ends. Even when you split up, it never ends. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, it's a great feeling. It's, it's, the, be- it's the best feeling I've ever had. And um, yeah, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have had it. And still having it. You've mentioned the jam a couple of times, and I can't sort of like move off of that without finding out a little bit why why the jam what is it about the jam what is it about that connection they have with you and, and what kind of track are we talking about when we when we want an, an eponymous sort of jam track for you well i think when you look at when you look back at the jam now with 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 today's in through today's lens being a certain age you look back and think oh aren't we clever to have got into the jam what a seminal band blah 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 blah. aren't we sort of thought leaders but actually when i got into the jam they were just a pop band they were just they were just a pop band. They were like Kylie Minogue was to people in the 80s. They were, that was our pop madness and the jam and the police were pop music. They were in the charts. So it, was, it wasn't it was a we call to discover Paul Weller, let's dress up as mods. It was, this is pop music. Um, and obviously the lyrics really resonated. Like I was 11 when Town Called Madness came out and I wrote an English essay about it. And that was the first time I'd sort of thought about Thatcher's Britain and, and how everyone's not as fortunate as I am. And, you know, and um, I just love the power of them. I love the way they dress. I love that. I've always loved power trios. I love the way that Paul Weller just attacks the mic. We got, became really good friends with a band called Jesus Jones in the nineties, and I love we, we're skate. We're all into skating, and all our mates were into skating. And so Jesus Jones are like a UK sort of skateboard culture band. Vision Street, where we're in, super cool. Shots at Slam City Skates in Covent Garden, and um, when we moved to London, we really got into Jesus Jones. I love the way Mike Edwards would attack the mic stand like Paul Weller. There's that kind of angst around singers in in in, um, in, in power trios. Green Day have got it. Um, the Police had it. It's, it's incredible. I just like the energy of the jam, all the kind of you know scissor kicks and jumping in the air and stuff like that. And yeah, bloody amazing. And they, and um, they played in Leeds. And my mum and dad said, if you want to go see them, we'll get your cousin Karen, who is older than you, to take you and Jason. But you've got to save up for a ticket. So we worked all summer. 
trying to cutting people's grass and lawns and washing cars and I bore my kids this all the time because my kids are like, oh, don't tell me that story again. You know, when you when they're not even stacked with dishwasher, right? You know, it's like like it's the hardest thing in the world. It's like, come on, there's a system to stack in dishwasher. And um and I always bore them with this story, but yeah, we learned to be entrepreneurs. We had to go and to get this jam ticket to go and do stuff. And then went to HMV, which is how you bought tickets, or Virgin or whatever, and, and they sold out, of course, you know, as a gem. But mum and dad had already bought them, you know, cannily on their first day and made us work for it and the whole summer. And, and, um, and I'll never forget walking to Leeds, Queens Hall and just listening to, yeah, listening to Funeral Pyre or whatever it was at the, the start of the, um, start of the set with. And, It was pretty basic, like, you know, Leeds Queen's Hall was a shit tip and there's no real PA and lights. It was like, it was proper punk really, but to a lot of people. That was it, left there thinking, this is what I want to do for a living. I think I remember telling our teacher, this is what we want to do for a living. But instead of the really cool story where the teacher goes, forget it, and then you prove, you prove your point years later, our teacher went, oh yeah, great. Yeah, well, why do you try violin? Because we're not really teaching drums here, but you might get into music. So yeah, it was really encouraging and started playing violin and then slowly got into playing drums. You mentioned punk. I can't w walk away from punk without talking to you about your experiences playing with uh, the Sex Pistols. Tell me about that. What was that like? Yes, yeah, our agent, unfortunately, uh, rest in peace, Steve Strange, died last month. And it's his uh, funeral next Wednesday. And he's one of my best friends. And... Um, yeah, one of the pillars of music in, in this country. Coldplay's agent, Eminem's agent, our agent, Ash Feeder. For a long time, Steve was the only person that really believed in us. And um, so when we got a record deal, Steve became our agent. And uh, I remember we were doing some B-sides at Bath Moles in Bath. And he phoned me up and get your ass down to Shepherdsbush Empire. You're running up for, you're running up for the, uh, the Sex Pistols in three hours. I was like, what? Like we just got a record deal. We'd only just got signed like in the summer. And um, yeah, that was it. It's a week before their Finsbury Park comeback show. And this is their only ever indoor gig on that so 25 years before you know, after they split up. So yeah, we we had like, we, we supported them and the Shepherds Push Empire. Charles got hit by with a pint of piss within about 11 seconds. And I played a 40 minute set in 23 minutes or something. So, ah, absolutely bricking it. And then I remember my grandma saying to us, don't be punks. But we told her, we were, no, we, we were playing the Royal Albert Hall. My grandma came to see us and we put her in the Royal Box in the Royal Albert Hall. And I remember saying to us, don't be punks. So we had a video, we had a B-side called Don't Be Punks with my grandma sampling it. It was quite funny. What was the crowd like at the Sex Pistols gig? Um, yeah, pretty nuts. A lot older than our crowd at that point. Like, we, we picked up a really young crowd and uh, skateboarding kind of, you know, that sort of new punk pop-punk crowd, um, but this is like your oi-punk, Camden, Camden Lock, oi, Kings Road, 70s punk, and super partisan, you know, they're not looking for any support band, they want the Sex Pistols, and um, yeah, so it's pretty, yeah, but we, we went them over by the end, we had a, I think I remember by the end of it, it was great, 
it's just fucking us. We've not really learned us. We've not really learned the craft of touring at that point. We've just done small shows. We've done one festival, which is Phoenix Festival. If you remember that, that was our first festival appearance. So like twenty people in some far-flung stage that no one cared about. And then that, and, and that was it. And then Steve got us on loads and loads of tours. We went on tour with everything. Our tour after that was Faith No More. It was my favorite band ever after the Beastie Boys and Rush. And um, we learned loads from that adventure and how to treat bands and learn it. Like, it's incredible. There's a whole education that was. Faith no more on me like that. What's going on with that? And Billy, you... I remember Billy. Um, Billy, we were in Glasgow. We were driven first time I heard ourselves on the radio. Driving it to Glasgow, Stephen Mack was playing a song of ours called "Bad Idea," and I remember him talking about it for a long time after the song had finished. It turns out, and he loved it, and he kept playing it and playing it, and playing it, and um, it got B-listed at Radio One. Or well, the next single did "Foghorn" got B-listed at Radio One, and, and um, driving it to Glasgow, went to the Thistle Hotel. Our tour manager said, um, um, yeah, let's go out. Um, I'll show you some, some of Glasgow. I've never been to Glasgow before. One of my favorite cities in the world now. You know, I've been there hundreds of times. And um, and because, oh, by the way, Billy Gould's going to turn up to say hello. I was like, you what? So like, yeah, Billy from Faith and the World's going to turn up. He's going he's gonna to do what? Yeah, where are we meeting him? He's like, oh, in the hotel lobby. Well, he's going to come to the Thistle Hotel in Soggy Hole Street. Like, yeah, he's be here in a minute. And then Billy Gill turns up, pulls up a chair at our table, goes, hey, I'm Billy from um, Fenton War. Just want to say hi, guys, and um, show you the sights. I was like, you what? He goes, yeah, just want to make sure that when you turn up tomorrow, you've got some friends. You've got a friendly face. And we went out and had the best night. We went for a curry. We went to all these different clubs. And it wasn't the fact that I was starstruck because, you know, we were going to meet him the next day anyway. But this is our favourite band. This is We were signed to London Records because we, we had a big label what's the word, Chase. We had multiple record deals on the table and, and for whatever reason, <laughs> I don't know why, but London Records are like, right, we'll get you on tour with Faith and More. We'll fly to Lake Tahoe to do a snowboarding trip. We'll pay for whatever, you know, make it up, make your record deal up. So I wrote down on a piece of paper and faxed it to them back in the fax days, what I wanted for a record deal. And they were it. Love it. So we literally wrote our own record deal. Imagine that now. I honestly did. I wrote all the heads of terms down, not even with a, not even with a lawyer, just, just what we needed, what I felt like we needed. And um, yeah, threw in some cool stuff and, and they made it all happen. And Faith and More was one of those tick boxes and um, they sent our stuff to them. So obviously they'd listened to it and Billy liked it. And he said, um, he said Patton really liked it, which I just couldn't believe Mark Patton's even heard our stuff. And um, yeah, it took us around Glasgow. But what, what I loved about it was, it wasn't the fact that he was taking us under our ring. He knew where to go. Like, hey, you're from, I was like, hang on a minute, he's from San Francisco. This is rainy Scotland. How the fuck does Billy know? It turns out, after doing this, I can do the same thing for anyone in any city in the world. 
honestly. And you don't realise how many times you're going to go back to these places and you're going to get to know all the promoters of all the different clubs because you're going to play them. And then, so he went to the cat house, he went to here, there and everywhere and Billy, everyone knew he was, got us in for free, drinks for free. And then the next day we sent it to the Glasgow show and we had a friendly face that met us at the door and took us under their wing and... But they probably do that for everyone, but we made us feel really special. And I learned loads. I learned how you're standing behind Puffy playing drums. He changed his snare every four drums. I didn't have a spare snare at that point. It's like, why would I need a spare snare? Then you realise you're going to go through it and you need a spare kick, pedal and a spare snare and a spare snare stand and maybe some hi-hats. And, and I remember that at that Glasgow gig, we were backstage when they came off and Mike Patton was going absolutely mental at someone because the house lights had not come back on. So he's like, he's, he's shouting, go house, go house. Like, I have no idea what that meant at that point. To whoever's in charge to turn the house lights on. I was like, oh, of course, yeah, because the fans think they're going to come back on because the house lights haven't come on and, and they're not. So it makes them look like wankers. And that's really important to him. And there's all these little tricks of the trade you start picking up and you start getting your education of touring and you learn it from these megastars. Yeah. Did you find yourself at that gig? Um, I mean, I would have, but did you find yourself standing at the start of the stage watching the performance as a fan afterwards? Yeah, always. I've always done that. I've always been obsessed with gigs. Like, even before we got a record deal, when we moved to London, me and Jason, my mate Tristan, and all our mates, Dave and Sid and Rob, we'd all go to loads of gigs and we'd get there early for sound check. But then we'd kick, we'd kick around afterwards, not to meet the band as well, but to see flight cases come out and go into trucks and to see production and see gaffer tape. And, and that formed my lifelong fetish with flight cases and production and buses. And, and I think it's from, you know, when you were a kid, you build dens in your garden or whatever. I've always loved doing that. And that's why I love VW camper vans and boats and, and tour buses always feel like a den. And I just, I, I used to love, I used to think, what would it be like to finish your gig and put a towel around your neck and just go sit on the back of a bus in the, in the kind of lounge at the back and open a beer and just, and, and you know, I've seen bands do that when we've left, we've, we've left gigs and seen them say hi to them, gone, you know, as fans and signed autographs and they've gone onto the back of the bus. And I've always just loved that, you know, they sort of drive off into the sunset to the next thing. It's always fascinated me. And then to be able to do that for 30 years has been a dream come true, really. Yeah. Do you have a sense of yourself being uh, being fortunate to, to have this experience? I mean, you know, obviously from someone that loves music the way that I do, you know, I'm, I'm nothing but envious. But at the same time, I take a lot of joy in, in listening to you talk about it. Yes, yeah, super, super. Like you make you you make you do make your own luck. Like, you know, hard work, Trump's talent, as you know, uh, Mark. You know, when we when we, we do our, our stuff together and teach and and, and, and try and impart some some of our kind of stuff into into people that we're we're teaching, it's it's one of those things that you know you can be super talented, but you can just be lazy and waste it. Um, and hard work trumps that. There's a reason David Beckham's got such a great free kick. He's not because it wasn't he's naturally gifted, but he practiced every day, and. Um, yeah, and, and we always work really hard and we're grafted. So we are super lucky, but we did create a lot of our own luck. And I think our personalities have, have helped us retain relationships with people, have given us a bit of a break where they would have just generally let us go. Um, there's definitely been a few times where that that's definitely been friendships have friendships have helped us retain a deal or two. Um, definitely, because we, we we you know we had six years of no success, not even get played on the radio, just slogging away doing. 250 gigs a year and building up a fan base 
you'd never be allowed to do that now. And this is a record company paying for it. You know, we were on a meagre salary of like 800 quid a month. But we're still getting paid to be a band, which I can't believe. Better than being on the dole. Um, yeah, yeah, super, super, super fortunate. And, and fortunate to be, at my age, 52 years old, at Christmas, still feeling fit enough, because I've had a few health scares, so touch wood, still feeling fit enough to be able to do it. And um, we've got a tour in March, doing the forum in Kentish Town, you know, and, and uh, I think there's 12, yeah, 12 fairly big, big venues on that tour with our friends Reef, and um, who we've known for years. Uh, and we did Shepherd's Bush Empire on our last tour, and that was really busy. And you, you, you sort of pinch yourself after not putting a record out since 2005. Nothing, no, no, no column issues in the press, no radio. You can still just put some tour dates on sale, and you can do Shepherd's Bush Empire. You know, so you still get to be in tour buses and tour at a certain level and have printers in flight cases in your production office and all stuff that really makes me want to do it. The thing about that, though, is you work hard. I know how hard you work. I know how entrepreneurial you are. I know what energy you've got. You've always got this fantastic energy about it. There's something about the way that you are. It just, you know, it, you, you, you know, you, you, you have this kind of prickle about you with regards to the energy you've got in you. And it's infectious a lot of times. Yeah, we are the same. We just live, we just live shit. Live stuff. Yeah, it's a cruel, awful world, and it looks like it's falling, a, falling apart at the seams. But I'm sure it did before... It's done throughout history. There's still some amazing A stuff around, and there's some A's people around as well. Few and far between these days, but there's enough of them to make you feel good about about the place sometimes. Um, yeah, you know, so I think I, I am very fortunate that I've got to the age I'm at uh, without really having any sort of mental illness or or any sort of form of depression because a lot of my friends, especially male friends, going through an awful lot you know it's, it's hard life's hard and uh, and I'm really fortunate I've still got this kind of wide-eyed wonderment like a you know I just love stuff and um yeah do you put that down to your love of music though what does music mean to you and how does that interact with what you just told me yeah music is everything it means it's an escape you can you can put your headphones on and escape it's inspiration it's really inspiring I think music is the most inspiring Jason's a Grammy award-winning producer and does that for a living now. And um, and we've got a little interest together, businesses together, but it's predominantly how he pays his mortgage. And um, he, he talks about the magic that can happen inside a studio where it can go anywhere. Five people in a room, it can go anywhere. You know, there's, there's five people, there's four people. If they call Metallica, it will go in a complete direction to so those four people if they call Coldplay to those one person for a DJ. That, and that's the magic of it. It's unbelievable where it can go. You've got no idea where it's going to go when you first start. And then to what, what comes out the other side is good enough to inspire people or get them jumping them down or inspire them to be in a band or save their life. Like when people tell you that your songs have saved their life, like quite literally blows your mind. You think, hey, you're lying, the starters. You know, people say anything for a free T-shirt. But um, they mean it. Generally, and um, yeah, your lyrics help. Sometimes, you know, our stupid songs help people, and um, that's a power of music. Power of the music can get people through a lot of stuff, well, especially people who feel isolated and feel a bit alone and don't feel like they fit in. Music finds you your tribe. Tribalism is so important. 
whatever. And the, the world's getting less tribal. I miss that. I miss seeing goths and mods and skins and rasters and punks and metalers and everyone's a bit uniform playing vanilla these days because that's the way the world's gone. And I sound like an old man about it, but I like tribalism. It was great. Yeah, that's why I look about football. Until people start getting violent, it's fucking plain ridiculous. But I do love the, you know, and standing behind a flag. I don't, I'm not remotely into that. Uh, I, you know, I feel like a bit of a kind of citizen of the world, not remotely standing behind any kind of nation. But I, but I, but I do like a bit of um, music tribalism. It's fantastic, isn't it? You get to dress a certain way. You get to feel camaraderie. And um, it's mad how these things happen. And what's great about England is we've, We've got a history of forming these cultures like like that, music cultures, constantly churning them up and down. Like look at look at grime and look at what's happening these days. And, and um, yeah, it's it's amazing the way England churns this stuff out constantly and, and reinvents culture. Just let's talk about music that means stuff to you. Then let's start to just you know get a feel for what what makes you excited about music so think about a pivotal moment for you in music what would that track be or why um town Combalis by the jam definitely one yyz by rush i i remember listening to yyz for the first time and i never heard a drum solo before because i grew up in that kind of you know punk rock new wave and said it wasn't anything remotely subversive it was pop music um and then hearing Neil Peart play YYZ and play this drum solo and thinking there's only three people on stage, it, it literally blew my mind. I could not believe it. So hearing that by Rush, Tom Sawyer by Rush, was was something that really still moves me to this day. I can't believe it sounds that good every time I play it. It's a lot of rush. Check your head, but the whole of Check Your Head by BC Boys is the side B of Ritual Dilabitual by by James Addiction, and um, which I make Dante was working at W uh, East West at the time. He put that out as a single, the whole side B. <laughs> Nuts, isn't it? Yeah, East West released that as a single. Um, yeah. Best gig I've ever seen, James Addiction, Brixton Academy. Oh, yeah, um, ritual, did a habitual tour. Oh my oh, God. Right. I remember there was like, back before every wedding had festoon lights. They had festoon lights, didn't they? From the central bit of Brixton Academy all the way to the to the back of the balcony it was amazing were you there that night as well yeah I remember the support band was a band called Loud yeah and we, I was singing along to them because I seen them in Norwich at the UEA the day before um, or a week before sorry and the A&R man that signed them was stood next to us he's like oh you know this band I was like well I saw them last week and it turns out it was um, I can't remember which person it was from A&M Herb Alpert or Jerry Moss um, but he signed a new record label and um, signed them and then got slightly pallid with the people from that record label. And that's how we really ended up getting a record deal. But for me, it was it was when everyone was getting really upset. It was taking so long for them to come out. And I don't know if you remember, but Perry Farrell came out dressed as a roadie with a cap on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and and all of a sudden, he, um, he, he, you know, the, 
he took his cap off and started playing. Yeah, and they just went, at this moment, you could be with us, living like we do. That's when I stack the dishwasher, I love I love stacking dishwasher, and I put side to a ritual on and take the you know, entire land for three days to stack a dishwasher and do it right. And um, yeah, because I've got a little solid speaker right there. So I always, I always do that when I'm, or when I'm cooking Sunday lunch. So that's like my Sunday lunch music. Three days was a track, wasn't it, eh? I've still got the original T-shirt from that tour that I bought with Perry Farrell and the, you know, the religious iconic one. And I've got it hanging on a hanger in my room. And every time I go down to my den, as it were, it's just there looking at me. It just reminds me of that night all the time. I describe it as a religious experience. It was, yeah. And we saw them the tour before at Historia, which was, which was incredible. And then we saw them and the, then we tried to get into the marquee when they play the marquee and couldn't get in. But my mate Tristan got a bootleg video of it and we just, it's VHS, we just wore it out. And he's wearing his white, white, white beater. He had a skinhead, he was like on about infiltrating the skinheads. He's had, his, he's had all his dreads shaved off. And um, just, yeah, the drummer, what's the drummer called now? Something Perkins. Um, it's, uh, yeah, Perkins, Stephen Perkins. Here we go. Fucking hell, what a band. What a band. Um, and then another band that you mentioned a lot, obviously Faith No More. I mean, um, synonymous track for you? Uh, Faith No More, it would be um, Caffeine on Angel Dust. Across. I love that first line. And that Brixton Academy gig was great. And um, I remember he pissed in his pair of Air Jordans and drank from it. Like, Patton's mental. He split his head open on the drum riser on our tour. We were touring with him. We did the Historia. He, he just headbutted the drum riser, cracked his head wide open. There's blood gushing out of it. He's like days and like all over the shop. You know, my biggest memory of that tour was we did not in Rock City. We walked into the sound check and he's wearing a pair of Adidas original jogging bottoms, looking cool as hell. And he's got his SM58 mic that he's singing into, into his pocket, full of change. And he's just rustling it around like that. So you've got a sound of change being rustled around through the PA, just pissing everybody off. And he can do everyone just going, pattern, pattern, pattern. He's just there, he just realizes that his whole day is just to piss people off. Do you miss them? Faith and more. Um, yeah, yeah, I think they're coming back. There's a, there's a tour at the moment, they're touring the States at the moment, so. Hopefully I get to see that when they come over here. Yeah. I bloody love rock music. I love it. Rock music is, is amazing. There's nothing like it. What about other styles of music? I mean, we talked a lot about rock. We talked a lot about stuff. What other styles of music do you like? I mean, what's your, who's your favourite drummer and why? My, well, unfortunately, my favourite drummer is a rock drummer. It's Neil Peart. Um, but I love anything. Anything that's good. Like, um, I love pop music. I think pop, music, pop music's really hard to write good pop music. Um, yeah, love, love, love a lot of um, sort of 60s stuff, like, classic, like classical stuff, you know, classical 60s stuff, not classical music stuff. A lot of soundtracks, 
touching on your business outside of performing music, yeah. um, how important is that side of it? And how has that helped you to still love the performing when it happens? Yeah, well, yeah, I've always loved the business of music. I've always been fascinated by it. I always went to a record label, even when we were a kid. Going to, he used to do our manager's heading, I suppose, because I wanted to kind of be there. And My wife used to work at Warner's, at our record label, so I'd heard things before potentially he did. And I always wanted to make people aware that, oh, I know this news coming from the record. And that used to drive him nuts, probably, looking back. Um, but I always liked to be on the inside looking out rather than the outside looking in. And, and I never liked the them, the them against us side of bands versus labels. I always felt like we're, we're in a team together. It's only going to succeed if we're in a team together, working together to make something happen, not working against each other. So yeah, I've always been fascinated by the business side of it and then fascinated by the technology side of music because music and technology have always been synonymous from you know gramophone records all the way through to MP3s and then you know they're streaming now and CDs and whatever. So I've always loved music tech. And then that whole startup world, which sort of happened 10 years ago that I was heavily involved in with a company called Bandap that I founded. Some great friends from that world back then, but all these little businesses started around that time. All launched at South by Southwest in Austin and some of them gone on to do great things. Most of them are formed by the wayside, but they're all, that was a really sort of punk rock little community of startup people in Shoreditch. You know, Shoreditch was like this, our first studio was in Shoreditch, uh, um, back when Shoreditch was a complete dive. And um, yeah, so we had, a, we had a studio at the time we got a record deal. And uh, we brought all our record company people down to our studio in the basement on Curtain Road. And they couldn't believe it. Like, what are you doing down there? Like, oh, we're doing B-sides and we're doing demos and we're recording for doing remixes for this artist and that artist. And like, really? Blimey. It's cool, isn't it? Like, you've got other stuff going on. And like, we've always had other stuff going on. And you've got a lot of time to kill on tour. So um, there's only so many Starbucks as you can sit in and without you getting a bit bored. And so, yeah, all started businesses, started record labels, started managing people. Um, I think the only thing we haven't done is been an agent. Really, it sort of touched everything else. And um, yeah, always learning, there's so much to learn. And now I'm in the sort of promotion, promoting side and the live event side. And again, you know, been a tragic weekend for live events with Travis Scott and all that kind of stuff. So you're constantly taking stock and and try and learn and try to see where, you know, where there might be an opportunity to, to build better and do better stuff. All I want to do is just work on cool stuff with cool people. I'm not particularly bothered about making money. Never really made a lot of money, really, you know, not changing, moving the needle in terms of money, but enough to get by, but it's not, not remotely the motivation. It's just to build, 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 build a stuff with, with, with great people. I think that's a good place to stop, really. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, mate, thank you so much. It's oh, been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Sorry, I've, uh, I've had half a beer. That's all it takes for me to waffle. I'm rubbish at drinking. You know, all those years in Bloodhound Gang, you think I'd be a bit better at drinking, but it's had the opposite effect. It would be my pleasure to help you practice. <laughs> oh, yeah, good. Next time then, definitely. You've been listening to the Feeling Sound podcast, and that was Adam Perry. As ever, thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.